From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. When was the last time a book grabbed your attention hard enough that you wanted to slip inside and stay there for hours at a time? I remember this happening all the time when I was a kid. I would read books while walking because I did not want to put them down. But then, at a certain point, that sort of stops. It just gets harder to find yourself totally immersed in another world that way. So when a book comes along that makes you do that, something that tricks you into forgetting you're a busy, self-conscious, pretentious, defensive, distractible adult, it feels amazing. And a while back, there was a series that did just that to me and to a lot of other people I know. I read the books... In my mind, I read them all during the summer. I remember I was lying with my friends on the beach and we were like so deep in like Ferrante world. You were all reading it? Yeah, we were all reading them. But we were reading passages of the books to each other. Oh my God. It was like, it was like we were just so obsessed with even just her writing at that point, which felt like philosophy. Yeah. And I remember we did the same thing where we read an interview Ferrante gave in Vanity Fair, Uh which we also were reading aloud to each other. (laughs) That's Ruth Spencer, the Cut's deputy editor. And the books we're talking about are called The Neapolitan Novels by Elena Ferrante, an adaptation of the first book in that series, My Brilliant Friend, is coming to HBO later this month. And we're using that as an excuse to revisit the Ferrante novels and to talk about why we couldn't get enough of them. According to their publisher, the Neapolitan novels have sold about 10.2 million copies worldwide. Back in 2016, the New York Times had a story with the headline, Ferrante Fever Continues to Spread. In this episode, we're going to be looking at their journey to international success and talking to women who have all different relationships with Ferrante's work. From the translator whose English language versions have made her a star in her own right, to a woman who runs tours of Italy for Ferrante fans. Ruth and I first discovered the novels a few years ago. For a while there, actually, it seemed impossible not to. Because roughly every woman and also many men whom I encountered were talking about them all the time. I remember my ex-boyfriend asking to borrow them. (laughs) And me being like, my book? (laughs) My Ferrante books? I mean, I, I guess you can have them, but like you have to give them back. And then being like, oh, God, I've underlined all these sentences. Oh, God. <laughs> what kinds of sentences did you not want to see underlined? I mean, anyone seeing underlines and marginalia is like, a nightmare, but. Betrayal. <laughs> underline, 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 underline. You know, like. Rage. Rage. Yeah, exactly. Sex rage. Yeah. The book spanned decades in the lives of two Italian women. From their childhood in the 1950s to their involvement in the political radicalism of the 60s and 70s up to 2010. That's when one of the women, who's now a successful writer, learns that the other, who still lives in the neighborhood where they grew up, has disappeared. So the writer, who's named Elena, or Lenu, is trying to piece together what happened to her friend Leela. Growing up, they recognized early on that the two of them were the smartest kids in the poor part of Naples where they lived. As children, they barely saw the world beyond their housing blocks. And Ferrante makes the neighborhood a whole world. It's vivid and oppressive at the same time. Both Leela and Lenu want to escape however they can. They want to have big ideas and make big plans. But their parents don't want them to go to middle school, 
No one expects girls to amount to anything. There's violence everywhere, and they don't even speak the same language as the people in charge. They speak this regional dialect. At the center of the story, though, is the way these two women have been inside each other's heads for their entire conscious lives. Calling it friendship almost makes it sound too simple. What I love so much about the books is just the friendship between Leela and Elena is given the same degree of, like, complexity and intensity and depth that any romantic relationship yeah. would normally be given in a book. You just never, or I had never read a story of a friendship that was told like that, like, mm-hmm. almost like a romantic one. And I've had many friendships in my life that have felt like that, yeah. where there's been so much love and betrayal and jealousy and like mimicry and like all kinds of shit yeah. that, that like took such a huge toll on my life. I just think there's such a hunger for women to read about our friendships in that way. I connected so much to the way that Lenu just sort of admires Leela so completely. Like, there's so much discussion of Leela's mind and her brain and how yeah. she thinks. and How she, like, teaches Lenu new ways of thinking. How, yeah. like, she's like, oh, I use this logic because it was the kind of logic that Leela always used on me when she was making arguments. Totally. You know, I remember this friend that I made in high school. We became so, so close so quickly. And there was so much intensity between us that it felt like... It felt like we were creating energy. It yeah. felt like power. Like, you know, we would talk about wanting to travel and like huge ambition and aspirations and like moving to New York and like going to see a jazz show. Oh. And, like, like, being like 14 and being like, yeah, we're going to go downtown. We're going to watch a jazz show. Oh we're going to take it in. But like, I remember feeling... The first time I had a friendship like that, like being so aware of this new sense of power that I had by being with someone else, like a girl like me. But for some reason, the two of us, we could kind of do anything and which was not not true. um, (laughs) Upon reflection, reflection, we could not do anything. (laughs) Um, And I remember really relating to that dynamic between Elena and Leela in the same way. One of the things that's so funny about it being this kind of immersive phenomenon is that like, what kinds of books come to mind when you're like, oh, yes, it's a quartet of novels or like it's like a series that people are super fans of and like want to talk about nonstop. It's like George R.R. Martin or like Harry Potter or something where it's like, I want to live in the magical world in my imagination. And this is like crumbling buildings and poverty. Yeah, it's hardly fantasy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So in that spirit, we did a very fun thing a couple days ago, which was we had Anne Goldstein, who's the translator of the books, in our office, in our very self-same office at New York Magazine to talk. Well, you don't have to be that impressed. We were interviewing her. That's fine. That's normal. But what we did that was fun was that we got Anne Goldstein to read out loud to us. Oh, my <laughs> so God. So we were like, That's like producer magic. Sarah was like curled on the ground, like looking up raptly at Anne <sighs> Goldstein as she read. And she read us the scene where Leela and Lenu are first becoming friends. They're first playing together and they end up dropping each other's dolls down the chute. I was small and really my doll knew more than I did. I talked to her, she talked to me. She had a plastic face and plastic hair and plastic eyes. She wore a blue dress that my mother had made for her in a rare moment of happiness, and she was beautiful. 
Leela's doll, on the other hand, had a cloth body of a yellowish color filled with sawdust, and she seemed to me ugly and grimy. The two spied on each other. They sized each other up. They were ready to flee into our arms if a storm burst, if there was thunder, if someone bigger and stronger with sharp teeth wanted to snatch them away. We played in the courtyard, but as if we weren't playing together. Leela sat on the ground on one side of a small barred basement window, I on the other. We liked that place, especially because behind the bars was a metal grating, and against the grating, on the cement ledge between the bars, we could arrange the things that belonged to Tina, my doll, and those of New, Leela's doll. On the day we exchanged our dolls for the first time, with no discussion, only looks and gestures, as soon as she had Tina, she pushed her through the grate and let her fall into the darkness. And then Elena looks at her and says, what you do, I do. And they then go down to the cellar to look for their dolls, which is a very frightening experience. It's the scene that sets the tone for the rest of their friendship. These two girls are watching each other. They're fascinated by each other. They're each other's mirrors, but they're also different in ways that they're both acutely aware of. And they pull each other in new directions. What you do, I do, could be a joint motto. Anne Goldstein's English translation has sold nearly four million copies. Anne herself loved Ferrante, but she was definitely caught off guard by Ferrante fever. I was just astonished because a translated book never gets that kind of attention. This wasn't a book from some powerhouse author or a funny-slash-inspiring celebrity memoir. In fact, no one knew who Elena Ferrante was. Elena Ferrante is a pseudonym. The writer who uses it has never revealed her identity, and she only does interviews in writing through her publisher. Even Anne has never spoken to her. Um, I basically have no contact with her. If I have questions, I write to the publishers. Yeah. And they write to her. What is that um, experience like as a translator? Um, it's, it's, um, it seems normal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've translated a lot of dead writers, so I'm used to not having the author around. So would you like to meet her if that were like on oh, the Oh, Elena Ferrante? Yeah. You know, I don't really know. At this point, I think I think that that I have a relationship with the narrator of her books. <laughs> and I don't I don't know. I don't feel that I would necessarily want to meet her. <laughs> yeah. There is kind of this crazy thing where like you've sort of become her surrogate. Like if you google Elena Ferrante, your picture comes up. What is it like? I saw like that, that once. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that until recently. <laughs> Has ever, anyone ever mistaken you for her? I had some friends who used to joke that I was actually Elena Ferrante, but <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously that's not true. <laughs> You're um, going on the record. You're not. Yes, I am not Elena Ferrante, <laughs> nor do I know who Elena Ferrante is. I, I like, really? Like, oh yeah. Yeah. No, I don't. Do you ever get people approaching you in kind of a starstruck way? Um, yes, actually, the first time somebody asked me to sign a book, I was astonished. <laughs> I just thought, what? <laughs> but I didn't, since then, I've done, you know, I've, I have signed a lot of books. Yeah. Um, gone around talking about, her, <laughs> talking about her more than I would have if she was talking about herself. Obviously, people love a mystery. So there's always been speculation about who the real Elena Ferrante might be. A couple of years ago, an Italian journalist named Claudio Gatti published a story claiming that a translator in Rome named Anita Raja was the author of Elena Ferrante's books. He was working from real estate and financial records. And a lot of fans were upset that he was trying to reveal Ferrante's identity. She'd wanted to be anonymous. She'd wanted the books to speak for themselves without the distraction of having a particular person attached. Neither Anita Raja nor the publisher ever confirmed or denied it. 
so when i saw the article i was like oh my god what's happening <laughs> just because the name sounds so indian Samita Chakraborty has worked as a books page editor for a national English newspaper in India for the past eight years. Suddenly, this weird connection that I have with this name that may or may not be her. Yeah. But it was just that one week of utter excitement that, oh my God, she sounds so Indian. Samita's written about Ferrante. She's a huge fan. She says that the books speak directly to the experiences of young women growing up in India today. I mean, she was talking about post-war Italy, but it seemed that these two girls could be right here in India. How did you feel like it resonated in a specific way? Very specifically, I would say it's the gender roles. So in urban India, I would say we're told that, you know, girls and boys are growing up the same, but it's not true. We have different rules for girls. Girls need to come home by, say, 6 p.m. That's when the sun sets here. But boys can stay out a little more. Older brothers can discipline the younger sisters and older sisters. We've grown up with what we feel are liberal modern parents, but always having to fight. So I think the gender rules are a huge part of why they resonate with women in India. And other than that, I thought the synergy between opulence and poverty, the elite and the people who speak the dialect in uh, Ferrante's world Mm -hmm. is something that would resonate with the upper caste and the lower caste. There's a part in the second book where Leela and Lenu go stay in Ischia, a vacation town on the coast. Leela's married a guy with money, but Lenu's still living with her parents, and they're poor. They can't just send her off to the beach. So Leela hires her friend as help. That part, when the two girls go on the beach, yeah. where Lila is paying Lenu because she can't afford to take a holiday if she's not paid, the whole dynamics of that beach holiday, I thought was just mind-blowing. It felt familiar in the sense that, you know, we've grown up with friends who've come from different backgrounds. And though while we were children, we never realized that. As we grew up, it sort of did become evident, which nobody talks about. Mm. That really resonated with me. I envy women who haven't read them yet, you know. I mean, Uh, I mean, they they don't know what's waiting for them. (laughs) Because these books were such a phenomenon, it's easy to get into a bubble where you're talking about them like, oh, yes, Ferrante, our definitive text on female friendship. Back in September, the writer Caitlin Greenwich tweeted, Elena Ferrante is for people who have not yet read Sula. When I saw this tweet of hers, I screamed. I, like, (laughs) fully screamed on so many levels. Aminatou So is the co-host of the podcast Call Your Girlfriend. I called her up to talk about Sula and Ferrante. Sula is a 1973 novel by Toni Morrison. It follows the lives of two women, Sula and Nell, from their childhood through adulthood, with the divergent paths they take. Sola is really about, you know, like a woman who really transgresses the rules of patriarchy and really wants to act like a man. Sola is set in like Midwestern black community. It's called The Bottom. I think it's like between 1920 and 1965. You know, it's like the rural versus urban setting, basically Sola versus Ferrante. Like both communities are poor. There's unpredictable violence. Mm-hmm. Nell and Sola find refuge in each other's homes for like different reasons. One likes the structure of the other house. The other one likes the messiness of one's house, you know. So it is like some of the themes are the same. And reading the Neapolitan novels really became shorthand for, you know, like, are you down to talk about complicated female relationships? Yeah. And as somebody who 
is delighted to read women all the time. Yeah. It almost felt like an explosive way to explore the relationships that other women had with Mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. You know, probably for the last decade, the mean girl, the era of the mean girl is basically over. Like, you're supposed to have a lot of women friends. You're supposed to collect women. And here is a book about women friends where, like, the shit sucks sometimes. (laughs) I was like, oh, you are smart women. You like being smart. You are ambitious women work and all of these things like come into play you know like not to say that like relationships and men don't come into play but there was really something about like oh like you are you want to be each other's intellectual equals and that was something that they articulated like very early in their friendship and they actually talked about it so you know Mm -hmm. Bechdel test achieved yeah (laughs) (laughs) but I think that the thing that struck me the most about the tweet honestly like Alana Ferrante did not invent the text of complicated female relationships and you know I'm not a white woman and I still fell in that trap so yeah like I also got swept up in these like trend stories and it never occurred to me that you know people experience book trends in kind of a racialized way sometimes. It has nothing to do with Ferrante and everything to do with how book trends happen and who gets to be in the popular imagination as, you know, like a cultural icon. Not to say that Toni Morrison is not a cultural icon. It's <laughs> she's just, doing you okay, know, yeah. Like, you know, she's she's doing fine, right? Like, nobody's erasing yeah. Toni Morrison's <laughs> work or her voice. But I do think that, you know, like, I would say that for me, at least, like, in my, in my circle, the Venn diagram of people who read the Ferrante novels and who also read Sola is mostly Black women. Until this tweet, I had never had, like, a serious conversation with a white woman about Uh Sola. And I was like, okay, like, these are the dynamics that are at play here. Just thinking about, like, when Ferrante came out, people were like, oh, yes, mm, let us now think about female friendship as if this is... Right, like, white women were making friends for the first time. Like, that's what's going on. (laughs) It's like, good for you, ladies. Good for you, ladies. You know? Coming up, we are going to Italy. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays, where we're talking about Elena Ferrante. Napoli conquista l'America grazie a una delle scrittrici italiane più apprezzate nel mondo, Elena Ferrante. In my conversation with Anne Goldstein, Ferrante's English translator, she made this nice point about the way the books suck you in. One of the things that are compelling about these books is that you read them as if you were living them, as if you were living your own life. Like the way things have an impact on you, like world events, they're there, but you're not participating in them. Yeah. And they're they're sort of the way you experience, almost the way you experience the world. I mean, friendship, people, relationships. Yeah. So I think that's also a reason that people got so involved in them. The books capture the way you absorb history as it's happening, as part of your daily life. You overhear a story on the news while you're thinking about a fight with your mother and wondering about what you'll eat for dinner. Lila and Lenu's lives in Naples conjure that same sense of daily reality. And Naples can be grim. Southern Italy was hit hard in the destruction of World War II and took a long time to recover. That's the backdrop of the books, the poverty these characters grow up in. 
They're casually aware, meanwhile, of neighborhood figures who are fascist or communist. And then there's the organized crime, the Camorra, which is always just barely out of view. Even when they're little, the girls sense danger around the edges of their world, even if they don't know all the details. It kind of hit all parts of Naples, how it's a place that's both extremely beautiful and repulsive at the same Mm -hmm. time. Daniela Terry lives in New York, but her family is from Naples. She fell in love with the city the first time she visited. She says seeing Naples made her own family make more sense. Recently, she started leading tours of the city for Ferrante fans. They come from all over the world to see the neighborhood where Lenu and Lila's story starts. They're seeing it for what it is. It's a working-class neighborhood. It's right outside the train station, right on the other side of the train station than you would exit as a tourist. It was built after the war. It's not the sort of uh, narrow lanes and laundry-draped streets that you might think of when you think of Italy. It is much more like housing blocks. It's very gray. It's very grim. But not dangerous, necessarily. It's just working class. The neighborhood is such an important presence in these books. Who gets stuck there? Who escapes? Early in the first book, when they're still kids, Lila and Lenu decide to go to the beach together. So they lie to their parents and leave the neighborhood on their own for the first time. The tunnel they take is one of the stops on Danielle's tour. The tunnel is this space that connects the neighborhood and the sea, which is very close to the neighborhood, but the girls have never seen it, which Mm -hmm. I think is a consequence of poverty. So many people never just leave their own neighborhoods. So Leela takes Elena out on this intrepid journey to walk through the tunnel. As Leela gets farther away from the neighborhood, she gets more scared. As Lenu gets farther away from the neighborhood, she feels more powerful and more free. Mm-hmm. And so it really becomes this metaphor for the characters and how their lives will be lived in the future. And it's such a dramatic scene. I mean, there, there's trucks passing them as they walk through it. But it's dirty. It's raining. It's dangerous. You're feeling nervous for these children walking through the tunnel as you're reading it. And then you see it and it's tiny. Danielle shows Ferrante fans around Naples and they go wild. They're actually in this world that they've spent so much time imagining. They fall into a fever dream. I mean, <laughs> these characters are so rendered in such a way that they really do feel real and mm-hmm. I've taken people into the library where Leela had been checking out all those books secretly. The church, which is specifically named in the books, is right across the street from the elementary school. We were there once when school was letting out, and all these kids were running out the doors. And my guests were like, oh, look, this is like (gasps) Leela and Lenu leaving school. I mean, they really (gasps) fell into a fever dream of just walking these streets. Traditionally, Naples has not been a tourism hotspot in Italy. Americans in particular have tended to view the city as crime-ridden and scary and avoid it. That's starting to change, though. And Danielle makes a very strong sales pitch. It's very, very colorful, but sort of peeling. It had its days of grandeur in the 1700s, so there are all these enormous palazzos. There's 600 churches within the city. Most of them are quasi-falling apart. There's grass growing up in front of some of them. But it's the kind of beauty that you have to appreciate as sort of an old, very regal woman who has amazing clothes, but, you know, they all have holes in them. (laughs) And, you know, they're living under one of the world's super volcanoes. (laughs) Wait, what super volcano? Mount Vesuvius. Oh, yeah. It's right there. You know, (laughs) like everywhere you look, you're looking at one of the world's most dangerous super volcanoes. And there's another volcano in that people don't talk about as much, just a little outside the city, which is actually burping and gurgling and ready to blow any minute. So I think there's a certain let's live for today when you live underneath a supervolcano. 
How do you think understanding Naples better can change someone's understanding of the books? The engagement with the city informs the characters, their trajectory, the the sort of uneasiness and the beauty that could be felt in this place where it feels like something could break out, violence could break out at any minute. The volcano can blow at any minute. At the same time, there is this serene beauty that does also make you want to stay. I feel like it's something you really feel when you're there and the books just take on that much more of a visceral quality. I mean, I think they are very visceral for most readers, but then understanding the place and feeling in the place just makes it all sink in. And then there's one of my favorite things about these books, which is the way they smuggle radical feminist thought into this pulpy page-turner package. When you pick up the books, you do not think that's what you're getting. Start with the covers. A friend said to me, like, you have to read this book. Like, have you read this book? Ruth Spencer again. And then I remember when I went and picked it up, I was like, this is the book? Because the cover looked so crazy. Yeah, the covers are (laughs) bad. Bad, very bad. bad. And that one of, like, the two girls facing away. Yeah, like a wedding dress and, like, little girls in fairy wings. Yeah. Bad. And that combined with the title, like, My Brilliant Friend, I was just like, there's no way. Because it had been described to me as kind of, like, dark and, you know, super dramatic and, like, you know, really this compelling portrait of female friendship and looking at the cover I was like this looks like two dolls Mm -hmm. like there's just no way it looked so kind of innocent and like hack and there's a fascinating intellectual history behind those hacky covers Dana Tortorici is a writer and editor and she's written a lot about Ferrante I hadn't read books like that before and I think they were books that I was looking for and I knew they existed but I hadn't found them and then here they were After Dana had read all the Ferrante novels she could get her hands on, she wanted to find out how she could get inside Ferrante's head. Who were her influences? What kind of people was she reading? Dana found an interview where Ferrante talked about an Italian feminist named Luisa Moraro, who pretty much no one in the U.S. has heard of. But one of the big ideas that Luisa Moraro came up with was something she called entrustment. Or, actually, because she was Italian, she called it affidamento. But what it meant was a relationship between two women where one acts as a guide or a leader to the other. You entrust yourself to a woman who has something you don't, something you want to learn. Basically, you make that woman your brilliant friend. It was one of those moments when, as a critic or as a a scholar, a researcher, you just find the thing and you, like... It all all, comes into focus. It it just, Yeah. yeah, well, it just gives you chills. The Italian feminists that Ferrante was drawing on wanted to find ways for women to make their way in the world without having to pretend they were men. They wanted to be equal but still be women. And they figured that a good way to do that was to build up their relationships with other women, especially when those relationships were uncomfortable or challenging, which is exactly what everyone says they love about these books. They capture how intense friendship can be, but also how hard it is. And all that friction, all that drama is what makes the books so engrossing. So it's not like the page-turner aspect of the books and the intellectual aspect of the books are in conflict. They actually feed into each other. You know, Ferrante sneaks in Italian feminism to a genre reader on the one hand. On the other, she, like, does the opposite with a person like me, where I'm a snob who still has this bias against all sort of feminine frivolities. And she's saying, like, no, it's okay for you to like that stuff, too. Like, it cuts both ways. Dana said she thinks about Ferrante when she's doing her own work, when she's trying to say things that aren't always easy for people to hear. I think she's really brave. And 
contra the anonymity issue, I think that it requires incredible bravery and commitment to write this way, especially if in regular life you're a person or a woman who feels it's her job to maintain a social fabric, to keep things smooth, to pacify and please, to just write the truth, no matter who it hurts, is powerful. Ferrante, I mean, that comes from, you know, Farah's iron, mm -hmm. which is funny because women have an iron deficiency. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that all the time. <laughs> That's amazing. I've never thought about that. Yeah. Anemic readers yeah, getting their Ferrante. Yeah, yeah, no, taking my, my Ferrante supplement. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby, Nazanin Rafsanjani, and Alex Bloomberg, who recently uttered the phrase, slaying Luke's. Music, sound design, and mixing are by Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra Souser-Monig. Special thanks to Irene Zami and Elena Ferrante, wherever she may be. If you're looking for books to fill the Ferrante-shaped hole in your heart, check out the list of recommendations from today's guests in our podcast description. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. <laughs>